You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here, and today we are talking about striped bass post-release mortality. As a lot of you who have been following the Amendment 7 process with striped bass are probably aware, uh, striped bass post-release mortality in the recreational fisheries has been a pretty hot-button topic in the last couple of years, and there's going to be an opportunity to submit comments later this year um, once the amendment comes out with potential ways to address post-release mortality. But at the same time, there's been some really exciting research occurring at the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries, and we're thrilled to have with us today Bill Hoffman and Ben Gahagan from MassDMF to talk us through the research that they've been doing. So welcome to the Guidepost, guys. Hey, Willie. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Willie. Good to be here. It's great to have you guys here and, uh, you know, hear about the great work that you've been doing. And before we get into some of that, you know, we've all known each other a long time through through fishing, through research. And it's it's always great to hear the work that you're doing that's relevant to recreational fishermen. And if you could just each share a bit about yourselves and kind of what your role is with the state and the kind of research that you're engaged in, that would be great. Sure. I guess I'll start. Um, so uh, I've been working for the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries for about 23 years now, um, kind of going back before, after I graduated college, um, I was a fisheries observer, um, kind of gave me a really good foundation um, moving into working for the division. Worked on a lot of different really cool fisheries, um, a lot of ground fish stuff, worked on basically every commercial t st uh, fishery in New England including some experimental fisheries, um, drift gillnet for swordfish and stuff. So that really piqued my interest um, in some of this research kind of moving forward. When I first started working for the division, I was a sampler. Um, quickly moved up into running the sea sampling program, port sampling program, up until about 2008. Um, I did run a, um, a couple um, trawl surveys for Gulf of Maine cod. Um, and that really gave me a lot of experience running um, kind of big, relatively big budget projects. Um, but then once those ended, I really kind of transitioned over into this research that we're doing now. So starting in 2008, um, been pretty heavily involved with acoustic telemetry studies. Um, we started off with striped bass, um, and then we uh, transitioned over into codfish. We studied um, uh, spawning cod and and um, we, movements and, and, and stuff. And, and we found um, a lot of uh, interesting information about spe specific in state waters. Um, and I was working with, we had partners with the University of Massachusetts then. And then um, after that, we transitioned back into more post-release mortality studies for groundfish. So we did uh, worked on um, codfish, um, haddock, and um, cusk. And uh, and then now we're kind of circling back into you know striped bass. It's a it's a it's a iconic fishery for Massachusetts. Um, there's a lot going on with it right now, and so we've really decided to put our efforts in, into striped bass. And so I've been doing that now for the last several years. 
Awesome. Right on, Bill. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. I know you're a, you're a pretty fishy dude and a pretty rabid fisherman yourself. I'm wondering what's your, what's your favorite species to target? What really gets you going? <laughs> you know, I'm really fortunate because for my real job, I get to go fishing, which takes off like a lot of the need for me to go out and like target some of these estuarine and coastal stuff. So if all my <laughs> sure. eggs go into the tuna basket, any free day I got, um, and even in the spring, I'll hold off until I can go out right now. And uh, I wish the bite was a little better, but any day I can get out chasing tunas, that's that's kind of my passion right now. Right on. And I know that uh, I know I know that Ben often says that you're about the uh, the, the best all around fisherman that he knows. And you certainly uh, can attest to that. Seen some of those, seen some of the giants that you've caught recently. So I haven't said that to his here. face ever, Willie. Yeah. <laughs> now, now you're pumping my ego. Sorry. This is. <laughs> Well, this is what happens. You know, you spend so much time on the tuna grounds waiting for a bite and all the true, all the truth comes out. So here we are. You're like so, a ben, stiff. You? You're, you're like a three inch mesh freaking cotton. You're not getting anything. Seven inch how about mesh. you, Ben? Jesus, all going through. Um, okay, yeah. So uh, starting on the professional side, I, uh, I came to fisheries a little bit later than Bill. I didn't really identify this as the career I wanted to be in when I was young. And, uh, but when I did, I, it was through diadromous fish. So I, and that's my job officially now with the division, I'm a diadromous fish biologist. So I work with any fish that's going in between fresh and salt water to complete its life cycle. Um, primarily for coastal Massachusetts, we're talking about eel, river herring, both river herring species, American shad and rainbow smelt. Um, but yeah, I, I got into this in my mid twenties. I was always a pretty passionate fisherman and that's eventually what led me to it. Um, but the, uh, was working in Connecticut for a while and then, uh, got my master's degree at UConn and coming out of that, I got a job at university of Maryland with a professor there. And that's probably where I first started interacting with you. Cause I think you were doing your PhD at BIMS at that point. And, uh, I was working on straight bass, bluefin tuna and Menhaden while I was at the University of Maryland. So I was getting samples uh, from bluefin tuna, sampling the fishery in North Carolina and Virginia, the winter fishery. And uh, so I was there and then now I've been with the division for almost 10 years. And, uh, and I came to the division with a background in acoustic telemetry. So there were just a lot of hallway conversations between myself and Bill. Uh, you know, they had just come off as Bill was talking about, they had just come off uh, when I was hired in 2012 of finishing up and kind of going through the publishing steps of their initial striped bass acoustic telemetry studies. I had just completed an, a striped bass acoustic telemetry project based in the Hudson River, my previous job, and was in the middle of publishing that. So it just spawned a lot of hallway conversations between myself, Bill, and Micah Dean uh, at Division of Marine Fisheries and came up with some cool ideas, some interesting ideas we thought would be really useful for management, which turned into um, a study about the migration ecology of striped bass and how we can use that to better manage them here in Massachusetts. So very similar to some of the things you've done with bluefin tuna and probably talked about on various podcasts and articles for people who know your work. And uh, so we're in, we've wrapped that up in what bill the last year of full array was 2019. And uh, so now I'm in the middle of doing all that analysis and writing that up, but in the process of that, all these post-release mortality issues came up with the, the assessment. And uh, we were, Bill and I and Micah were somewhat tasked with, uh, by Mike Armstrong with figuring this out. So we were now two years into this post-release mortality study. And yeah, like, like Bill, uh, 
I, I think he answered kind of exactly how I would. I, I love, I've been really fortunate through the years. I grew up on Long Island Sound and started doing all my fishing in saltwater at a young age there. So, you know, I was freshwater angling and then saltwater angling and I've been super passionate and chased, you know, everything albacore, fluke, togs, whatever, you know, love, you know, caught on to doing straight bass early as bluefish and then rode the straight bass wave through the mid two thousands, got on boats going out to the canyons. So that's, you know, the tug is the drug. That's where I started getting addicted to tunas. And then now moving up here, it's, it's kind of crazy to somebody who, uh, you know, was used to going 80 miles each way, 90 miles each way to go get, catch a tuna that I'm sitting, you know, two, three miles offshore if I want to, <laughs> and you can see the shoreline and catching huge tuna. So yeah, I'm pretty much, I get to straight bass fish a lot for work sometimes. I mean, it's definitely work, but you, uh, most of my eggs are also in the, in the bluefin tuna basket now, trying to plan <laughs> part of your year around it. Right. Yep. No, for sure. And yeah, it's worth mentioning to folks that, uh, both Ben and Bill are up on the North shore of Massachusetts or in the Gloucester area. And sometimes I'll, I'll look out, uh, toward the, uh, I'll see Ben's boat anchored up out there and I'll have to find out if he's catching anything. Wow. So creepy and a spot burn. Thanks Willie. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. We can edit that out, right? Yeah, perfect. Um, awesome, guys. Well, hey, thanks for the intro. Ben, I should also mention, since you didn't, that you're also an expert uh, ice fisherman for crappie now, which, of course, I'm particularly excited about. So I'll be picking your brain about that as the uh, as the winter approaches. Totally. So, no crappie uh, on the North Shore, though. <laughs> right. Exactly. So let, let's get into it. Both of you guys alluded to what's been going on with striped bass, with post-release mortality. And if you could just kind of give us, you know, a brief background of, you know, what do we currently know about recreational post-release mortality and what really got you guys interested in, in doing this study? You know, you had mentioned some prompting from the state as well, but what was kind of the motivation to revisit what we currently know here? Yeah, sure. I'll start. So I think, um, I mean, going back um, to the original post-release mortality rate estimates, they were done by state of Massachusetts by former director Paul Diodati. Um, and in that study, um, he caught, or they actually caught using the traps in Rhode Island, um, small striped bass. They trucked them up into Massachusetts and put them into a salt pond um, that was closed. And then they <clears throat> caught them using various techniques, tagged them, and then at the end, they could drain the pond and see what survived. And using that technique, they came up with the currently, the, the currently used post-release mortality rate of 9% in the assessment. So based on our expertise and knowledge and, and um, really the the equipment that we have, the hardware that we're using now in Massachusetts, we decided that we could apply that um, and maybe make an improvement on this estimate. Um, I think this is kind of the impetus for the work because um, as we all know right now, striped bass aren't doing particularly well or they're you know in decline. Um, in that if you apply say you know nine percent rate and if, if we can make any improvement to that then um, we're going to be saving hundreds of thousands and coastwide even millions of bass so that was the you know that was kind of the impetus behind it um and then um, the obvious thing then is like well how would we make these improvements and so um we decided to tackle the circle hook question um you know, circle hooks have been implemented coastwide now as a conservation tool to, re to, to decrease mortality. Um, but um, there still is a, a lot not known about the effectiveness of it. A lot of, the, if you go through the literature, a lot of the 
uh, work's been done in um, freshwater or, you know, in tournaments. And, and um, it wasn't necessarily reflective of what's going on around the coast. So, um, you know, obviously right now we're not answering the question coastwide, but in Massachusetts, given our conditions that we have up here that are typical, we decided to tackle the circle hook study um, using this, this, this telemetry. Awesome. No, right on. Thanks. Thanks for that background. I think it's important to kind of remember, you know, the context and what's already out there. And Ben, I'm curious, just kind of stepping back a bit. And obviously this work began before this whole Amendment 7 process got underway. And again, one of the big items that's being looked at here is, is recreational post-release mortality and trying to figure out ways to reduce it. But if you look back historically, it's really interesting to note, you know, both the percentage and roughly the number of fish getting caught every year really hasn't changed a whole lot in the past 25 years. Wondering, why do you think there's such a big amount of attention being focused on this issue now? Um, yeah, thanks, Will. That's a great question. Uh, and I've, I've seen in this, some of these points brought up on your all's blog posts. Um, so Tony's not here to fight back against me today. I'm lucky. Um, so yeah, I would say it has been relative when you look over decades, it's been relatively consistent, but you're, you know, you are tracking a rise in, in the uh, catch and release from, you know, maybe 10 years ago it was down in the lower seventies to now it's in the upper nineties. So it has been going up over the last decade. And I think that's probably as much as anything reflective of the size class of fish available to anglers. Um, and while those numbers have been static, the, the available fish, the spawning stock biomass and the number of available fish have been going down. So yes, the raw number is static, but the, you know, you have less of a pool you're drawing off of. So the efforts stayed the same while we have less fish. And those are probably not about, you know, the point is usually made and probably correct that it's not really the effort that's driving that trend. It's the environmental conditions in Chesapeake Bay. We just haven't, you know, primarily in some of the other spawning areas where we just haven't seen good year classes for a long time, you know, and the ones that come aren't great and they're not consistently getting good classes and getting a lot of weak classes. So that's, I think, why it's a big deal. And when you get down to it at the end of the day, yes, it's been a consistent, fairly consistent number for decades. But right now, as Bill mentioned, it's probably the biggest lever we can pull to try and make a change. So for better or worse, that's what we're looking at. Um, and that's where we're trying to put our efforts to make a difference. And yeah. You know, I, so I think the whole circle hook thing, thing came up because of that. And, and as Bill pointed out, we didn't have great evidence for straight bass, but it was like, hey, let's be, there are people, thank goodness, on ASMC who wanted to be proactive and try to do something. So um, they enacted the circle hook rule. And then, you know, it was kind of, let's figure out exactly what that's going to accomplish so we can actually put it into the model. And that's where Bill and Micah and I have come in where we're going to, uh, we're doing these studies to try and understand exactly what the effect might be, at least starting with the type of fishing that's going on in coastal Massachusetts and a lot of places and hopefully working with others to expand that uh, coastwide. Right on. Yeah, thanks for that explanation, Ben. That's that's helpful for kind of, you know, clarifying where we are at this point. And I also want to just mention that the coastwide um, the coastwide requirement for circle hooks happened in 2020, but Mass was actually a bit ahead of the curve and you guys required circle hooks for private anglers beginning in 2019. So definitely relevant to, to what, what, what anglers are experiencing when they go into a tackle shop and all of a sudden it's all inline circle hooks as opposed to kind of a, a huge broader array and kind of understanding, you know, what, what the impact here is, is pretty, pretty critical. So if maybe Bill, I can turn to you, if you can kind of tell us about the research itself, you know, tell us what you guys are looking at in particular and, you know, how do you study something like this? What's, 
you know, you're not using the salt pond method that was used back in the in the 90s. What's your approach for looking at this question? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, I said back in 2008 is when I got into acoustic telemetry, and and really, this is the same equipment that we're using um, is produced by Innova C. Um, they produce um, a system that uses acoustic transmitters, which are the tags, and then acoustic receivers, which are the listening devices. Um, we go and we place, we identified the area, um, Salem, Beverly uh, Sound area, up here in Cape Ann, North Shore, Mass. Um, and we put out a, a rough grid of receivers in this area um, with the outermost row of receivers acting like a gate. And so the way the, the telemetry works is um, you catch a fish, you take the transmitter, the tag, you attach it to the fish, and then you can monitor its movements in non-real time throughout the grid. And then when it leaves your array of receivers, um, it passes through that outermost grid, which is as close to 100% as possible, so you can detect that it's actually left the area. So the tags that we're using are pretty unique um, and, and pretty I'd say almost cutting edge new. Um, so they are a, uh, an accelerometer tag. So it measures movement of the fish. And then within this tag, you can program it to um, measure movement on an X, Y, Z axis, so in 3D. Or you can, have, you can program it just to, um, to uh, measure tail beat tail or tail beat frequency. So for our application, that's the best setting because what we're you know obviously looking is at if the fish survived or not. So you program the fish to tail beat frequency, we catch a fish, we attach externally the tag to the, to the side of the fish and then release it and then we can measure its mo tail beat movement. So a lot of these fish, and I think this is one of the big things and one of the assumptions um, is that if you go into a tackle shop and you talk to your average angler and they say, well, I let everything go and it all looks good and it lives or it swims away or whatever. But does that fish really survive after that event? Because what we're finding is some of these fish can live days, if not even weeks, before they finally succumb from the trauma and the injury of that event. And so that's what this technology does is that it can track these fish as long as they're within earshot or you know, of the of these receivers, we can actually track the movements and the tail beat frequency of these fish. Um, and so that's, you know, that's that's the, the technology. And then the actual design is um, we are testing several different hook styles. Last year, we did um, an Edo Gamagatsu octopus circle hook inline, and then um, a regular J hook octopus um, circle hook. And then we did, or J hook, sorry. And then this year we did the, a 6-0 circle hook gamagatsu, and then we used um, an eagle claw 10-0 uh, this year because the the hook that we we're testing for gamagatsu wasn't manufactured in that size. So we're basically trying to cover the full spectrum all, of all these circle hooks. Plus we threw in a J hook. Um, we go out, we target fish of of every size. Um, we kind of have our our bins, um, which would be from the smallest that can take a tag, which is probably about 14 inches. Uh, up to the slot size, which is 28, and then um, we have our slot size, and then everything over the slot size. Um, so it's what 34 plus. And um, so we tag what's available to us. We really try to dis distribute the tags over all those sizes, um, but you know you can only tag what's there. And let's face it, the year class strength there's based on the year classes that have come out of the Hudson. Um, and the Chesapeake, um, some of those sizes are lacking. 
um, namely a lot of the slot fish were hard to get and certainly bigger fish. Um, and so we did end up tagging a lot of the smaller fish, which is good because those, those are the ones that people are catching and releasing. So, and, and you, and you guys, you also have to be catching fish in that array, right? It's not like, you know, if there's 40 pound fish that are like five miles away, you, you're not going to those fish. You're kind of stuck within your little grid, right? Of making sure that you're being able to see what those fish are up to after you that's let them go. Si yeah. Sorry. That's because that's, that's what happened to us. We know, yeah, we know like literally if we went down the shore four miles in deep water off of Boston Harbor, we could have caught as many 40 inches as we needed. And there, we're watching. There's mornings where you're going from Gloucester to Salem and you're like, oh, there's, you know, 40 inch bass crushing pogies on the shoreline of Manchester. <laughs> Doesn't help me. Does not help me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do that, that, that huge feed off of Magnolia. That's not going to work for us. <laughs> so. that, that's brutal. So actually, while we're on that, and I should mention, I had the chance to take to, to it out with Ben for a day and kind of see how this research happens back in back in August of this year. But Ben, take me through kind of a, a typical day for you guys. You know, what is it? What is what does fishing for science look like in this context? You know, what are you what are you guys? How are you fishing? You know, what are you kind of what's your approach to getting this research done? Yeah. For, so for right now, we're very much focused on the uh, the circle hook J hook question, like what is the efficacy of, uh, you know, of the conservation efficacy of a circle hook as compared to a J hook it was kind of our first year. And now in the second year, we're looking is there different, are there differences between different size or style of circle hooks? We're trying to stay in the same style, but we couldn't, like Bill said, we couldn't stay within the same brand, but different sizes. Um, and so we're, we're fishing strictly live or dead bait, but like a natural bait, a cut, um, for the regulations and that's what we're looking at so really you get up super early you know just like we were going to be going fishing and you know on a charter boat or on your own personal vessel we're going to get up really early we try and get where we think we can make bait as right in time to uh make that bait and get it as quick as we can the day i took you out was right in the middle of all the bluefish showing up and bait was hard to come by. We're primarily using mackerels in this study. Hardest, That's hardest part of the trip for sure. I was, I was thankful to have you uh, uh, your ability to read a sounder independently of me and, and put a sabiki to the right depth is a, a skill set that is not always present on the boat. I can't, I can't catch real fish, but I can always catch bait. Oh, uh, you were, you, yeah, you were great. Um, I'm going to avoid bad jokes and just say you did a great job catching bait. Um, the, uh, we all know what you're, we, we all know what you're thinking. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, proceed. It's fine. You said it, not me. Um, so the uh, so yeah, so you know, go out and make bait. Hopefully, it goes quickly. Keep that bait alive, and then uh, yeah, we were in the Salem Sound region, and we you know, Bill had some extensive experience fishing there in the past, and I've kind of stolen all of his spots. Thank God he doesn't fish there anymore, or else he'd be upset. And so now uh, he taught me quote unquote all his spots, or I just watched where he went and looked on the chart plotter if I had a trip after him. Um, not all of them. And, uh, not all of them. I know, I know. You're always holding out. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so go out and um, and then it's really about trying to make fish. We tried to bring anglers of various uh, experience levels too. That was something we haven't really mentioned yet. But you know, we're doing hooks. We didn't. We are trying to control or at least have as factors when we uh, when we start doing the real analysis and parsing out all this data. We wanted to know things like angler experience um and fight time and handling time and all of that so uh as you saw willie everybody gets a stopwatch um at the at the beginning and so 
The idea being that when you hook up, you start it, and then we get splits for how long it took you to bite that fish, how long it took you to unhook that fish, and then the amount of time for handling, which, you know, if we're not tagging the fish, that's pretty quick. That's just measuring the fish, uh, looking for any sort of wound, and get noting the hook location, because we're also interested in that, and then putting it back in the water. If we're tagging it, that was typically tagging process would take anywhere from a minute would be a super smooth tag probably you, know, you get shape a few seconds off of that and if it was a bigger fish sometimes those are harder to get a tag into it might take a little bit longer so um that was really it you're going out you're trying to simulate a recreational fishing experience whether that's with a guide or by yourself and uh and take all this information so that we can get a good idea of what happens and, and, and a cool thing about recording all this information that I will probably talk about a little bit more uh, as the time as our talk as we chat more about this is that by recording all that information even when we don't tag a fish we have all these data points that we can connect to our tagged fish so we're probably I think that after looking at the first year of data Bill Micah and I all feel like hook location and what we term a condition score, which was based largely on location and visible signs of distress, like an injury, a hooking injury or blood, um, are going to be reflective of the overall, of the eventual fate of that fish. And we're gonna be able to use the tag data to know that for sure. But what that means is that we can go out and not tag fish because these fish run about 600, or these tags run about 600 and change a pop. So this is not a, a cheap way to do it. Um, so, but if we can go out and just catch a bunch of fish or recruit anglers that can reliably record this type of information, then we can expand our results to untagged fish, which is going to be really huge and let us get a, a much better understanding of regardless of hook type, fishing style, you know, what type of bait you use, we can maybe get stronger results and start moving towards that coastwide number that bill was talking right and point about. got kind of pointing toward toward, the, toward those indicators of you know what's really impacting you know what whether these fish survive or not yeah so to get so we're science fishing we're, we have a big v right. board up back up on the on the leaning post you get all these looks from other anglers because you're you're hoisting 22 inch fish into the boat and they're like you can't you know they're you know they're giving you the eyeball like why are these guys keeping 22 inch fish what's going on here yeah. Uh, well, what I learned firsthand is that when the fish is on the V board, two hands on the fish at all times. Oh yeah, because they'll... remember we were I was letting one one uh, one uh, managed to evade the tag because it, it took a leap for freedom right over the gunnel as it was lying on the V board. It so happens. that was a good it a good happens. lesson learned. Yeah. Uh, a couple a, a couple just quick follow ups, Ben. You know, you guys had talked about the different you know the different makes and models of circle hooks. How did you decide kind of what you know what to use? Were you kind of just seeing what was available? Were you talking with folks in the fishery? Like how are you, how are you working? to make sure that what you did was representative of what people are actually using on the water yeah yeah that's a great question and so um you know bill and i we as we mentioned are both um pretty avid anglers with a lot of straight bass experience i i've been using circle hooks since like 2006 or 2007 in these applications um so i had my opinions and my experience talking to people but i think really importantly we did a lot of diligence bill talked to a lot of the tackle shops uh i reached out through you and others to guides and other anglers who were catching a lot of striped bass and targeting striped bass for a living to see what they were doing, what their experiences were. Talked to some of the charter captains associations in coastal Massachusetts as well to get an idea of what they were doing. Cause we, we did really want to use a hook that was reflective of what anglers were generally using now. That was a, a, an important part of what we were doing. You know, you're trying to 
it's always science and you're introducing biases by t handling and tagging these fish the way we are, but we wanted to keep it as, you know, control for as many other things as we could. Got it. Got it right on. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that explanation, Ben. And before we get into results, I have to ask, uh, when I was fishing with you guys, as somebody who doesn't do a whole lot of bait fishing for stripers, uh, I found circle hooks to be an incredibly useful conservation tool for me personally, because <laughs> I think I had about 30 bites and I maybe landed 12 fish. So like, you know, it was great. It was great for the striped bass, not so good for the angler. Meanwhile, Ben was next to me and hooking every single fish that bit. And so how do you hook a fish with a circle hook guys? What's different compared to fishing with a J hook to make sure you really, you know, you, you, that you button that fish and land it. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I it's hard to, cause I've been doing it so long. I don't think about it, but I guess, uh, it's feeling the bite. I mean, it's kind of nice now with all this braid and, and, and short leaders that, um, with the fluorocarbon and stuff, you know, when you have them, you let them run and then you, uh, yeah, set the hook and, and reel down. You don't necessarily have to, it's not like, you know, the, the Bassmasters hook set that we used to have to do with J hooks and mono. It's, you just basically drop the tip, start reeling, get tight, and then raise the tip pretty fast. And that's, that's all I do. It seems to work. Yeah, I, I would notice, I, I would say the one thing that I adjusted to, um, and I don't, and I, and Bill, you might've noticed it first and then I, but I just absorbed it was, um, and I don't know why this happens. I don't know what, and maybe it's not even real. It just was my experience. But if you had the rod perpendicular to the way the line was going, I feel like you dropped a lot more fish. Like it, it was just really important to keep the rod. I don't know if it's just the way that the, the line on the, the tension on the line ended up pulling on the hook, but, but I, I really found it would tell people and it seemed to work for them too. It's make sure you keep that rod tip parallel to the direction of the line. It seemed to increase the amount of bites that turned into hooked fish. And that's something, Interesting. you know, that's... if you're a top water guy <laughs> used to working that kind of stuff, you might not be doing that. Or, you know, even like a right. crankbait or whatever else you're using, swim bait, you know, you're, you're doing your sideways perpendicular motion to get action on that lure. And just, it did not seem to work well with these live bait out or dead bait applications yeah. on the circle hook. Noted. No, that's, that's helpful. I will say I did redeem myself a few weeks ago. I was out fishing again with a friend of mine and my hookup ratio went way up and I, it's like anything else, right? It's a matter of getting the confidence and kind of getting the feel for it. And then from there it, it works. But I think, you know, for folks who are initially hesitant, um, you know, it's just important to kind of, you know, recalibrate and retool a little bit. And then there you are hooking those fish. So. Yeah. I would echo um, that Willie. When, when I, I made the switch in back, like I said, in like 2006 or 2007, that was three Wayne, uh, and like 50 to 80 feet of water. And the first day I went to circle hooks, I don't know how many fish I dropped. I was ready to throw those things overboard. I was really, really <laughs> frustrated, but you know, over the next two trips, it, you, you figured it out. And then it was just like, you know, all of a sudden I'm not killing 30 pound bass i don't want to eat or want to let go so they can spawn again and you feel a lot better about right. it so yeah no for sure yep just a matter of you know it's a, a new tool and a new a new way to fish and then it becomes second nature just like so many other things right so that's that that it's good it's good to get that experience you know because i think obviously so much of this is we want to reduce mortality but we also recognize that folks are much more likely to adapt and obviously with circle hooks it's a requirement but for other best practices you know if they know that it's not going to negatively impact how many fish they're catching or it's going to have a minimal impact there it's going to be a lot easier to get folks on board to, to do that kind of stuff yep so um so let's let's get into what you guys found i think uh, as i recall you guys have put a couple hundred tags out by now you put a lot of put a lot of tags out on fish and if you can tell us a bit kind of you know what 
how many tags you've gotten in the water and you know what what you've seen so far knowing that you're you know in the midst of a multi-year study here interesting to hear what you're saying yeah yeah um so that is it i mean this is still new and um we're still i mean literally we just last week got some of the last tags out for the this past study but in year one um I, some just some brief summaries um statistics uh so we did 20 trips um and we caught over 400 bass in those trips and um we did um like i said 46 centimeters was the smallest fish the biggest was about 115 centimeters um, with an average around 63 centimeters and again that was largely based on just what was available because due to your class strength uh, and for the non the non-metric folks among us that's the median fish is about 24 inches 24 25 inches. yeah exactly they're all right there cookie cutter 23 to 25 every almost every fish and um we did uh about 84 circle hooks and 92 J hooks. So it was a pretty even split. Um, we tried to get it about as close as we could. And, um, and then we had the residence time for those fish. So within our array, some of those fish stayed there and these were living or fish that lived were for 127 days. So they were there for the whole summer. So that's great. That was proof to us. Okay. These, this array is functioning properly. Um, and then some of them, we would get like one detection, and then leave um, and then but the average fish stayed in the array for like 44 days so that was really good um, and then of the 176 fish that we tagged right off the bat we were able to conform confirm there was probably about 14 that died but there was still a, a bunch of unknowns so some um, that probably were dead like we tagged them they sank to the bottom and the problem with acoustic with acoustic telemetry is like if if the tag is in an acoustic shadow, say behind a rock or something, sometimes it can't be detected. So there were some fish that settled to the bottom that probably were not detected. Um, and then there was several tags, about 14 of them that were still missing. So what was beautiful about this technology and what we're using is that even if this fish leaves the array, say it sneaks out somehow undetected, there are so many receivers up and down the coast. In Massachusetts alone this year, we have um, I have over 100 receivers and then our our colleague Greg Skolmo, who researches white sharks, he has almost that many again. So we have a really dense array of receivers up and down these coast in the spawning grounds. There's receivers. So if our fish sneaks out, we'll still get detections and confirming that it survived. That it did survive. Um, so that's kind of where we're at with that study. Um, we still got a lot of work to do, obviously. Um, and uh, there's, you know, I still need to go through all the other receivers up and down these coasts and try to look for our other fish. But ballpark back to the envelope right now, you know, we're looking at like anywhere from an eight to maybe a 16% post-release mortality rate. Um, so it's online with what was done by Diodati et al. Um, but that, you know, remind you that he wasn't only testing circle hooks, he tested everything. So this is just these J hooks mixed in with circle hooks. So it's maybe, I mean, certainly an inflated post-release mortality rate when you think of post-release mortality as a whole for all striped bass, but in this study first year, you know, back of the envelope, that's kind of what we saw. And was there, you, you had mentioned roughly half and half between circles and J's. Was there a significant difference there? Were you guys seeing pretty similar numbers in terms of how many fish were dying from each hook? Yeah, I think we got to tease that out. Significant, um, that's a good question. It may not have been, um, but, you know, we're going to look at that closer. Um, and that's another reason why we tried, we just did that one circle hook. And so, you know, obviously right off the bat, like, well, that's the wrong hook. So that's, you know, that's why we're testing more hooks too, to see um, if there is an improvement between J's and, and circles. I mean, that's kind of one of the important things, right, is 
can we detect that difference and then hopefully make recommendations I'll, one thing i'll say you know that what we're going to find from all this work and it doesn't matter what you use there is no secret bullet, you know silver bullet there's nothing that's going to fix this problem um you know there's going to be stress and trauma associated with any hook or any way you catch that fish and so i think one of the things that's going to come out of this is that we really um the education here is going to be paramount like where i think implementing the circle hook rule has already created awareness so people that may not follow striped bass as much they like they fish their one little dock off or off a dock at one spot and that's all they know and they're like oh the fish is good this year or it's not good this year but to, to really impress upon those people um that handling practices are going to be paramount for this you know hopefully avoiding worse consequences for you know whether it's management decisions or the or the for the stock and so we need to improve these better techniques of lifting them out of the water you know big fish if you get that trophy and you lift it out of the water by the by the gills and hold it up to chest high for that photo that's probably not the best way to handle those fish they don't big fish especially they don't handle gravity well their their organs sag and it puts a lot of pressure on them so support the fish if you can if you don't have to lift it out of the water don't don't lift it out of the water um and the other thing is that i've noticed when we've had people on our boats um you know kind of know your ability when you're looking at a hook and it's deep in the gut of a fish if you can't get in and pop that hook out easily without causing trauma just get as close to the hook as you can cut that leader and let it go and let it swim free because i've seen and it's it's a great for our study we'll get people out there that are novice and they try to reach in with their pliers and they're jabbing at that fish and they're actually hitting the gills and causing more trauma so those are the things that we're going to be i think putting out to the public and there'll be a result of this work is that this is the other important key part i think of what we're trying to do yeah for sure no thanks for mentioning that bill and i do want to touch on that a bit later just thinking about you know to what extent can we regulate this versus really changing how people behave and kind of you know those norms right and, and getting the word out about the best way to handle these fish so thanks for thanks for bringing that up um and definitely a, it's a key part of the key part of the solution right you can only require so much a lot's going to matter about getting the word out and making sure people understand really how they can best help the resource so you had mentioned you know for that that first year like an eight to sixteen percent looking at both circle hooks and j hooks combined and ben this past year 2021 this is the year you guys were looking at kind of the the different kinds of circle hooks and trying to see if there was a difference there anything you can any kind of you know sneak peek as to what you guys have been seeing there yeah totally and and just to help make the connection about what i'm going to talk about and what bill just talked about because obviously we we don't we haven't pulled the array yet we haven't gotten our final data yet on these last batch of fish we just tagged so we're, we're not going to know till midwinter even have some idea of what that died and when and everything else um, is that I, I mentioned earlier in like the walking me through the day part of we have these condition scores and we're recording hook location. And Bill, if I'm remembering correctly, all of our fish that did we did know to die in the array uh, were all condition three fish. Uh, yes. Yeah, we had some condition, yeah. maybe a couple condition twos. Yeah. Yeah. What's a condition three fish, Ben? Yeah, exactly. I was just wanted to, so we'll start with what their condition three. So we created a condition score, and this was based on hook location and then any visible sign of trauma on the fish, like uh, like an obvious wound from the hook or like a lot of bleeding from something from some area of the fish as a result of the hooking. Uh, and it was a one to four scale, 
with one being, you know, a nice hinge, clean, or like a top or bottom lip, clean hook, no blood, everything looks good. You get, you know, it comes off and you release that fish. That would be like a one. Uh, a two might be uh, something somehow, you know, you get it a little bit deeper into the lip and there's a lot of continual bleeding. It's not just a little bit of blood, like you nick something, but it just keeps bleeding as you're handling the fish. Or you have a hook that's deeper in the mouth. There's more tissue damage. There might be some blood involved with that. And then a three was either a lot of blood because like it was in the mouth, but the hook nicked the gills and you can see that there's gill damage. There's blood coming out of the gills um, when you reel it in and you get it and you're handling it or you get a, you know, a gut or, you, you know, what people call a gut hook, but basically you, that hook, the fish swallowed the hook. It's in the stomach and either you couldn't get it out or you got it out. You know, it, um, those would lead to a three. And then a four is that fish died as a result of being caught and handled. You know, you, you, you put it, you try and revive it. You can't revive it. It happened a handful of times to us. It's really primarily with fish we tried to tag after they were gut hooked or hooked, uh, you know, bleeding a lot. So yeah, uh, given all that, and hopefully everybody could follow that, uh, you can always rewind. I will talk briefly about our 2021 results. Uh, this year we weren't able to dedicate, we had some other projects going on. We weren't able to dedicate quite as much effort to tagging. Uh, we did catch a total of 277 fish and put out 170 tags. Um, I'm just going to talk and whenever I, talk about something here. It's just about the fish we caught, not uh, statistics related to what we tagged. And so very similar to 2020, our smallest fish was 16 inches. Our largest fish was 37. And uh, the mean size was 24 and a half inches. So pretty similar size class of fish that we're fishing on both years. I think that that's one thing we'll, we can talk about it later. That's um, you know, we were restricted to what was in the array in both years. I, our experiences really reflected the MRIP data where you'd have to go through 50 or 60 small fish before you caught something you could take home. Uh, so it was, it was interesting. We were seeing what a lot of anglers were reporting. Um, so we used, like I said earlier, a, six, a size six and a size 10 circle hook. And what we found was, uh, and we did a pretty good job of spreading those out. 53% uh, of the fish were caught with that 10-0 and 47 were caught with the 6-0. Uh, and you know, which can be difficult cause you can get a hot angler and all of a sudden you're like, all right, you're, you're using this hook you got to switch rods. And then all of a sudden it flips and the next person's the hot angler. Um, so, but we did a good job of that. Um, but what we found were really similar rates between the six and the 10, uh, basically the, uh, the size six Gamakatsu had a, uh, 70% of the fish we caught with that were condition one fish. And with the 10, it was 67% were condition one fish. And that kind of reversed for those condition threes where 19% were condition three for the 6-0 and 23% were condition three for the 10-0. Um, what, breaking that down a little bit, which is interesting is that that bigger hook actually had less gut hooks proportionally than the 6-0 but what happened is that large hook as it's in the fish's mouth seemed to be doing damage. I think, I think looking through all these numbers seemed to be doing damage. It would nick the gills or it caused bleeding somewhere else. Cause it had such, it was such a bigger hook. And so we ended up with more things that, you know, Oh, there's a lot of blood here. We're going to call this a three, even though it isn't, you know, the stomach is automatically a three. And so there's actually less stomachs, but they still had more condition threes proportionally than the six. Oh, and that was probably just the size of the hook 
causing some damage either during the hooking process or the biting of the fish. Um, but yeah, that's, that's ba the basic takeaways of what we've seen without looking at the acoustic data for 2021. Uh, Bill did briefly mention, I'll, I'll talk about really, I think that he talked about being kind of against people's expectations, perhaps, and I think it was against our expectations. What was the mean in that 2020 data build, a mean time between being released and then we get a signal from the tag suggesting the fish was dead it was like five and a half days. Yeah. So we, oh, that's we, a long we didn't, time, huh? Yeah. You, it wasn't what you'd expect where you put that fish in and dies. It, it was like, even the ones you're like, wow, this fish doesn't look good. They were making it three, four, five, seven, eight days and then, you know, dying in the array. Yep. So that was very interesting to see. So it swam, it swam away strong is not a good indicator of, uh, of what's going to happen necessarily not, is what you're telling us. Yeah. Bro. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. It's, so that, so I'm it's kind of, it's, you watch it, you can see him, you see him swim fast. And then you sink to the bottom, and then you stay still, and you're like, oh, it's died. It did. And then all of a sudden, you get up and move again, and then it took, it would be take several moves until finally, I think it would succumb. They, they're tough fish. That's, well, I think we've all caught schoolies, young fish that just, I mean, they're missing, you know, the, they're missing half of their face. Like somebody just totally beat this fish up, and they've still survived. I mean, they are, they can, they are pretty tough fish. It's amazing what they can handle. But I do think, you know, these deep hookings and, and that internal bleeding can obviously do a, do a whole lot of damage. And, um, Ben, to your point, you know, you had mentioned those gut hooking with circle hooks. And it, I think you had mentioned, you know, a, a, a not small percentage of fish, even with circle hooks, were getting gut hooked. And I'm wondering, is there any rhyme or reason, you know, we've bill mentioned, you know, there's no silver bullet and obviously a tool like a circle hook is, can be part of that, but obviously how you're hooking that fish, like what we talked about earlier, if you're like me and you're not hooking him, that's a pretty good way to, to, to not hurt that fish. But, you know, at the same time, is there, is there anything that you noticed that was leading to more fish getting gut hooked with the circle hooks? Um, yeah. And so I, I don't know, but yeah, so it was 23% were, were, uh, gut hooks for the six O and 21 for the 10 O. So very, pretty much the same, right? The 2% difference isn't really significant at the, the sample size we have. Um, so yeah, I, you know, one in five fish getting gut hooked. Uh, you know, I certainly have played around with the amount of time I let a fish have the bait. I think mackerel are hard. Uh, I, you know, fishing different types of baits for striped bass. I think the, just cause you're, you're talking live, you're talking live mackerel. Yeah. I'm talking, well, yeah. So it's talking live mackerel. I think that just the way a bass attacks a mackerel, I think they're fast, you know, mackerel are fast. So the bass are just trying to get their mouths on them somewhere and then kind of whack them and rearrange them in their mouth and finally get their swallow them down. And so it's hard if you try and set that hook quickly, it's not like a type of bait where the fish is just inhaling it head first, you know, like a, a scup or a pogey or something like that. They're going to, they're, those fish are kind of deeper and they're going to try and they got to get that thing the right way. Um, so I, I do, I do think you have to let them run a little bit and that can lead to some deeper hooking. And then I, I don't know, we haven't, what I haven't looked at yet for this data, and I don't know if Bill did for the 2020 data, is, you know, we were also doing chunks. And that's definitely one where I think the chunk bait, you know, that can lead to more circle hook. It, whatever the hook is, it can lead to more deep hooking. Um, just, you know, the fish inhale those things just so, just, you know, automatically, you know, the, the fish nerd way of saying this, the science way is buccal suction. So if you think about like a bass having that big old bucket mouth and they open it up, it creates like a big vacuum, sort of suck it right up. And it's just going right down their gullet when you're dealing with a mackerel chunk. So I think it's really hard. It's just going to be a higher incident, incidence of, uh, you know, 
of gut hooking that fish. And we have the data to look at that. We just haven't had the chance yet. Right, right. The only other thing is I'd just say gape size. So if you are using a chunk, if you use a smaller chunk, it's probably a little bit more likely in a smaller hook. It's going to be a little bit more likely to get a deeper hook. Um, you know, that's just, you know, anecdotal stuff that we've observed over the past couple of years, just being on the water and doing it. Yeah, and we, we should hopefully have the numbers to say something meaningful about that as we get deeper into the analysis. That's that's awesome. Yeah, thanks for, I think there's so many, whenever we can bring this back into like, you know, how exactly people are fishing and these little things that can really make a big difference. And you'll hear it all the time from charter captains or whoever who are out there all the time, you know, seeing, experimenting with this kind of stuff and being able to, to connect all of these different tools to, you know, the acoustic telemetry and seeing how it actually impacts is really, really powerful stuff from an outreach perspective too. So just getting back to kind of the numbers and just putting a bow on it. So Bill, you had mentioned somewhere in, you know, the eight to 16% range, probably not that different from what you guys, from what the Diodati study found back in the, back in the mid nineties. And knowing that this is all pretty early and that there's still a lot of analysis to be done. Just wondering, do you think, you know, how, how valuable do you think circle hooks are as a tool for reducing post-release mortality versus perhaps how people are, are going about hooking fish or the kind of bait they're using or those kinds of things. Like to what extent is this a, is this a challenge that we can address using these tools versus or different hooks versus trying to educate and really get out, get out word to the public about the best way to hook and handle their fish. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously the numbers are going to tell us how um, valuable tool circle hooks really are, but I do think they're important. Um, just, you know, maybe not going to significantly decrease post-release mortality but like i said any any number um for the positive for striped bass and i think that the potential is there and um and then again it you know i gotta go back to it's, it's really gonna be more of an education i think thing moving forward and using circle hooks is is one tool but there's gonna be a lot of other tools that we're gonna have to apply i mean and, and it's important right i mean what's the option they got to managers are going to have to do something to decrease mortality. And if we can't figure it out using improving our techniques and education, then there's going to be control measures and no one wants that. Absolutely. So, so it's, it's tough to say right now, um, putting a number on it, but I do think that there's a definitely gonna be a positive benefit for circle hooks. Right on. Yeah. I mean, thinking about just the volume, you know, there's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to get your head around how many fish, you know, this, obviously we have MRIP to help us just thinking about, you know, the tens of millions of striped bass that are being caught and released every year and every, any, any small decrease there could definitely, can definitely make an impact for the better. So it's, you know, it's, it's great to hear that, that you guys are, are on it and looking at kind of these different tools and just looking ahead here, obviously we've been talking about bait fishing, but recognizing that a lot of folks out there are using fly gear, they're using plugs, they're using all sorts of other stuff. Just wondering what are the next steps? Is, is this it for you guys for this iteration of this study? Are you going to be looking at other gear types at other uh, you know, other ways that folks are catching striped bass uh, and kind of how they might be able to retool their approaches there to reduce, uh, reduce mortality. Yeah. Yeah. We are absolutely are Willie. Um, we're hoping that next year we're going to partner with a, another state a little bit to the South of us to look at some artificials in a different fishery in a cold water, a cold weather fishery, um, which will be really informative. We think we'd also like to start uh, once we have a good, we feel like we've answered the circle hook, question well, moving into some different techniques and different, uh, different styles or tackle types, because our, I know Bill and I, and Micah's ultimate goal is to come up with a replacement for that number that's used in the assessment right now. We're really 
this the way it's designed is a circle hook study but our goal is to do multiple iterations of this and really come up with a complete really well researched well backed number uh i think that anybody who fishes for striped bass and has been fishing for striped bass and bill and i both feel this way that like temperature is such a huge factor and it's been hard to control for that in our study just because we're fishing in one location so we'd love to work we're always trying to work with people down in the chesapeake get them to use the same methods that we're using because we do think that like this acoustic telemetry approach uh is a really and the tagging method we have is a really solid way to get results so if we can keep apples to apples on all the methodology and just change the tackle up change the environment we can start getting some really good answers about some critical thresholds for these fish where you know i i, I think that what the they did in the chesapeake this year where they had like that hot weather closure going on that's a great first step it'd be great to actually also have data to show that it's supported and maybe that ends up happening in other places too so i think that that's where we're hoping to take this thing next and over the next few years and i i, I do want to mention while we're here and, and given the audience that uh this work is primarily funded by uh, license sales in Massachusetts. So I think that Bill and I are both really grateful to have the opportunity to be doing this work. It's great. It's exactly the type of work we want to do as fisheries biologists. And and I, I for one, am really grateful that Massachusetts anglers, you know, voted to have them a license. And this, they, I want them to know this is like where their license money is going. This is the kind of work we do with that license money. And it's important work that hopefully is going to lead to more fish and more opportunity for not just Massachusetts anglers, but everybody up and down the coast. Awesome. Yeah, Ben, for sure. I think it's, it's great to see where, you know, to see a tangible example of, of where those license fees go. And this is such a great, a great way to show how, you know, that can really contribute to an overall better fishing experience as we understand what are the steps we can take as a community. And back to what we were discussing earlier, I think obviously understanding these measures and Again, everything from different hook types to environment to how you're handling fish, all of those pieces can be so important. But I think understanding the best way to implement them is the other challenge. And so that's where groups like ASGA, you know, where we really hope we can be helpful because you can only make regulations for so many of these things. So much of it about is about communicating and getting the word out and demonstrating that you can still catch fish and be a, you know, be a damn good fisherman and not necessarily, you know, have to be, have to be, you know, using, using a J hook or using, you know, a bunch of trebles or what have you. And so the extent to which we can look into that and really be able to get the word out to folks is going to be, uh, hopefully we're, we're, we're a helpful part of the conversation and keep trying to address this challenge. Yeah, I agree. I, thanks a lot for all you guys are doing. I think you guys are doing a really good job, especially in social media and stuff, getting the word out, getting anglers educated doing a good job right on well we, we appreciate that bill and ben and thank you guys so much for joining us today on the guidepost we hope uh the rest of the tuna season treats you well and uh ben i'll try to stop spot burning on yeah it's all good man i think it's fine but thanks for letting me make fun of you because that's fun too <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be an episode of the guidepost without a little bit of that. So that's kind of par for the course. And Tony isn't here, so it, of course, won't be the usual level of abuse. But I think uh, listeners will appreciate what you were able to dole out. So thanks for that. It is still creepy to know somebody's looking at you with binoculars. I mean, like to just be sitting there <laughs> trying to enjoy your day off fishing and be like, "Oh, I'm being spied on." <laughs> I think I saw one a half mile off your stern. Yeah, that's happening. <laughs>